Hi, welcome to the D2C Growth Show by Hashtag Paid. My name is Roger, and every episode I sit down with founders and leaders in e-commerce, and we talk about everything from launching, managing, and growing a brand. And I'm excited because I'm finally talking to Kristen LaFrance. She's a former host of the Playing for Keeps podcast, where she became the mayor of D2C Twitter, and now she's the head of Resilient Retail at Shopify. Thanks for, thanks for coming on, Kristen. Yeah, thanks for having me. You took a summer internship in college, and... Your college coach said that you were ridiculous for doing it, for prioritizing your career over gymnastics. What's your perspective on that now? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, at the time, I thought he was wrong. And I would say that I still continue to think that he was very wrong in that decision. Um, gymnastics ends after college. You know, there's not really you either go to the Olympics and you're probably between 16 and 18 at that age. And then you're kind of done or you go to college. And once college is done, there is no like after collegiate gymnastics program. And so, you know, he was coming from a, a very selfish place of, I was just an athlete to him. I was a number in his lineup and he, he wanted to make sure that that remained my most important thing. But, you know, this was my, in between junior and senior year of college, I knew that there was something after gymnastics. I was already in a place where I wasn't loving the sport and wasn't loving the experience I was having on that team. And so, you know, I just said, I know I'm going to be something much bigger and more impactful than a gymnast at Iowa State for the rest of my life. So if you think it's ridiculous, that's your problem and not my problem. And so, you know, I went and I did this internship. It was a great internship. It's where I got kind of my um, HubSpot inbound certification. I learned what content marketing was at this internship. I really learned like the basis of everything I did. I also painted a wall orange and built some desks because that's what interns do, I guess. And so it was, you know, it was a really great experience that ended up being probably one of the better things I did in college, despite what uh, my authority tried to tell me. <laughs> and uh, I, I think it was two or three years ago, you wrote a piece on your experience in gymnastics, um, in division one gymnastics. What did that experience teach you about resilience? Yeah, gymnastics is a really, really tough sport. Um, any collegiate athlete, any collegiate athlete is going through a tough kind of resilient place where you're having to be both a student and try to kind of navigate that world, but also being an athlete. But gymnastics has this extra toughness to it. It's a, a sport that's kind of bred on this idea of don't tell me when you're hurting and when you are you tape it up you put a brace on it you keep moving um it doesn't matter how you feel it doesn't matter if you want to do this or not it's a uh, you know and there are some and I'm, I'm kind of putting a blanket statement on my experience but you know there are some coaches that are really great and some teams that don't follow that traditional culture but I happen to be on a team that did and so you know throughout my entire life of gymnastics which was you know 20 years of doing the sport it was every day was a battle of resilience. I think in college, what what really I learned about resilience was that sometimes it's not an option. And sometimes you're just put in a certain situation and you have to find your way through that situation and find whatever success means to you. Um, and really just, you know, I think it's, it's so similar to what entrepreneurs are going through right now with resilient. And it's like so much I felt when I'm talking to these entrepreneurs is they're saying like the situation really sucked, but I didn't have an option, but to kind of find my way through it. And that was like, that's the core of what I really learned in college and gymnastics was the situation wasn't great. It wasn't positive for me. It wasn't a place where I felt like I was 
being treated well or thriving. So I had to just find my way to work in that situation when I was there. What motivated you to join Shopify? Um, you know, I've, always, I've been in kind of the e-commerce world since within college. Like my senior year of college, I actually retired from gymnastics a year early. Um, being that athlete who needed to have something to do at all times and not know what to do with downtime, I immediately just like got a part-time job running social media for e-commerce clients in college. And so I've been around the world of e-commerce for my whole career, which means Shopify has always kind of been this like ideal, like that's Shopify. That's the place where e-commerce like kind of is born and where it comes out of. And, and it's the company that's pulling e-commerce along. And so between that and just kind of always knowing about Shopify and how amazing their product is and the community within Shopify and everything they've built, that plus I just have this like deep love for entrepreneurship and deep respect for people who are doing it. And, you know, one day I think I might want to be an entrepreneur and own my own thing. So what better place to kind of get on the ground learning than being at a place where you have access to millions of merchants across countries and just talk to them on a daily basis. Those were kind of the things that just made it, you know, a no brainer combined with also the role that I was given, which was, hey, we have this idea of something resilient retail. Can you just come and like tear down our ideas and blow it up into something that's totally new and that you feel like you can run. And so all those things put together and the timing of it, it was just like, oh yeah, this is what I want to do with my life. You lead the podcast, but the resilient retail is, 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 is a lot more than that. What are some of the things that you're responsible for now? And, and what will you be responsible for if you can share, of course, what are some of the things that are coming up? Yeah. So Resilient Retail is, you know, it looks like a podcast right now. It looks like we did a season one um, and now we're working on season two. And the main channel is the podcast. It's the audio content. But at the same time, we do have videos of everything. And now we're looking at the social media plan for getting those out. We have a newsletter. We have merch. We have content that's being written that's kind of like follow-up or waterfall content is the way that I say it. And so I describe Resilient Retail more as this digital property or this brand and space to bring the retail conversations that Shopify needs to be having to the merchants that we need to be reaching. And so, you know, right now I'm managing pretty much everything with the podcast except for the production side of it because I would lose my mind if I had to also edit audio. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's everything from the highest level strategy of not only what does this season look like, but how does this season factor into what it should look like in three years? What's the ultimate goal? What is it that blue sky vision and how do we work back to it to create seasons that lead up to that? So everything from that to then sourcing the guests and picking the topics and doing the interviews and doing you know the merch sending to them and then creating all the content that comes after it is something that either I'm doing or I'm working with a team and kind of managing those people to help create that. Um, as resilient grows, you're going to start seeing some like very crazy things coming out. Uh, you know, I mentioned some social media action. We're going to see some Shopify retail stuff happening on social. We're going to do live workshops. We're going to do, um, I mean, season two, the podcast number is about double the episodes as last season. So I, I might be a little crazy, but that's okay. Um, and then, you know, when we can start doing in real life things again, that's where resilience really going to become this powerhouse. It's almost, you know, even for me, it becomes like, whoa, I can't believe I get to build this. But, you know, we're talking about doing a bus tour or we're talking about opening retail spaces and having 
resilient retail workshops and one-on-ones. Uh, we're talking about doing, you know, things where we're helping a brand open up a retail store for the first time and documenting the whole process. It's really resilient is creating this kind of ecosystem of content and community around it. So it can just be the the vehicle for getting to know retail customers because it's a new audience for Shopify. Yeah. Speaking of real life, you've interviewed a lot of founders. You've done work on a lot of brands. What is it about the retail experience, so the, so the, the in-store experience that direct-to-consumer brands should be focused on recreating? Yeah. I mean, if you think about the best retail experiences you have, especially kind of in the the finished goods, apparel section, even going into kind of like cafes and bars and restaurants, what you always remember about a good retail experience is usually the the service you get and the connection you get. So, you know, Lululemon is really well known as a great retailer. And it's because you go in there and their staff is highly trained on the products they have. Their staff is trained on how to have a great conversation, how to put your name on the whiteboard in front of the fitting room, to ask you if you need other styles, to actually be someone who like you can walk out and say, does this actually like look good? And they'll honestly tell you yes or no, not just try to sell you things. So the power of retail really is in those one-on-one connections, in the, the humanity within shopping. And you can go all the way back to like, where commerce came from, where we used to just, you know, people would walk thousands of miles and then trade goods. And it was all about this human to human. I'm helping you. You're helping me. We're both going to win out of this situation. And that's what retail still has. And a lot of times that's what D2C is missing is that humanity centered commerce, that experiential focus, instead of just, you know, trying to get to the sale it's about actually trying to solve some problem together to then ultimately get to a sale or a trade or a buy, whatever it is. But with D2C, it's, I mean, it's been crazy kind of shifting from talking solely about D2C over to retail because the two have so much in common and so much to learn from each other. That's why we're seeing it all kind of mend into one where it's just omni-channel commerce. But it's definitely that it's that human experience that's so tangible and visceral that you get in retail the D2C has to really focus on how they can bring it into their online experiences. What are some brands that you think are doing a really good job of, of recreating that experience and creating that human to human interaction online? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many great ones. Uh, House has to be one that I'm always going to point to on this. Um, Helena just, she works really hard on building relationships with her customers. I mean, they did, you know, back in 2019 when we could travel they did this like tour where they just had happy hours at restaurants and they were making drinks with house drinks and it was free and you got to go talk to the founders and you got to meet them. Um, if you've ever ordered house with the package that comes is like a magazine and they're showing you the farm that Helena and Woody live on, the vineyard, the dogs they own, their kid, this beautiful ranch that they have. They're telling you the story behind what they're doing. And, and they're really focused on not just serving, you know, not just giving customers a product that they made that they think is really good, but actually connecting with consumers and connecting with them and helping them solve some problems. So, you know, for House, the problem they're looking at was the alcohol industry is riddled with um, brands where you don't know what's put into those bottles. A lot of times it's kind of crappy ingredients that aren't good for you. It's hard to find something that you can have more than two or three drinks of and not be too inebriated to have a great conversation with somebody. And so they really tried to reimagine what connection over drink looks like by creating this beautiful aperitif where the bottle is an experience, sharing it with someone is an experience, drinking it on your own is an experience, 
but they're focused on something bigger than just the product. Um, I actually pulled a quote from my interview for Helena because I think it just explains this idea so well of what I'm saying, where she said, I think a lot of it has to come down to your mindset of customers can be friends. Customers can be peers. Customers are people you can learn from, not just about your products, but about life or whatever they're doing. And if you think about it as this beautiful treasure trove of humans that you could hang out with for the rest of your life, it actually becomes very fun and not so daunting. It's one of the best quotes I've ever heard about commerce is that she's just saying, you know, starting an e-commerce business, no matter how you slice it, it's hard. And running a successful one is hard and it's stressful and there's so many things to do. But at the end of the day, if you can focus on I'm building this connection with human beings over something that's important and now I have access to learn from these human beings about whatever I want to, a lot of that hard stuff becomes a little bit easier because you have a new lens to put it through. So House is probably the number one example. And, and just because I interviewed her too recently, it's so fresh in my mind of how good they are at being bigger than products and creating experiences that are not just about that bottle that you're getting shipped to you, but about connecting with Helena and connecting with Woody and knowing the story and even though you're not doing it one and one in a store, they still do it really well across all their touch points. I totally agree with that. And I think it's so in line with one of your philosophies. And I hear you speak about it often. And that's stop marketing, start helping. And I think both Lululemon and House are such good examples of that. Are there any other brands who you see that are more focused on helping than on marketing? Yeah. Um, Bloom is going to be, and I feel like people are going to get tired of me using this example, but they're just so good at what they do. Um, so Bloom is, you know, they have period care, they have skincare products. It's kind of this like self-care focused brand, but they're really focused on marketing to Gen Z. And not only that, but they're focused on a much bigger story. So they have some really strong missions behind the brand. One of them being, um, you know, these products are kind of focused on girls who are going through puberty. And whether you're a woman or a man, I think we can all remember how like terrible puberty was. And it was tough. And a lot of times none of us knew what was actually going on. And a reason for that is because, you know, uh, sex education is only required in something like 20 states or something. It's a small number in the United States. And a number of those are only required to have scientifically true education in high school and middle school in all the sexual conversations that we can see now the results of those in our cultures. And we need this information. So they have this bigger mission, but they have these beautiful products as well. So some things that they do is they have an entire offshoot site that's called the state of It has all these resources for teachers, for parents, for kids to learn, to have these conversations. Um, I've even heard, you know, from them saying, we've had these people come where it's a single dad with a teenage girl who's having her first period. And I, I can't even imagine having to navigate that as a single father. And he found Bloom and he found these, you know, they have like a deck of cards that are conversation starters. And the story was, you know, he was able to have this incredible moment with his daughter that before a brand like this maybe wouldn't have. And that would have been really tough for her and tough for him. So they have this bigger mission. Then they have these products that are fantastic. And then on top of all of this that they're also creating, they have such a community focus. So they have a close friends list on Instagram where they're sharing certain content. They do content on Instagram like, here's a daily gratitude journal that you can fill out and share. 
has nothing to do with their products, has everything to do with actually helping the people they serve on the bigger problems centered around what they're focused on. Um, they have this SMS list. I, I use this example all the time where randomly they will fill up a Starbucks gift card. They'll take a screenshot of the barcode and they'll send it out to their SMS list and say, coffee's on us until the money runs out. So then you can go to Starbucks, you can order something and you can scan that code and you've got free coffee from Bloom. And again, like it's marketing, but it's not just marketing for marketing's sake. It's marketing to help people solve a problem or to feel better about themselves or whatever that problem is. And then that trickles down into sales later on. And it works really well, but not only does it work, it also makes the commerce feel really good. And it makes the interaction with the brand feel really good for both the consumer and the brand. And it's again, that humanity, but yeah, Bloom is, is one of the best examples out there of that because they just have this, you know, and, and it's not like it's front and center in all their marketing saying like, we're so good at everything. We have this content site that you should read. It's kind of just, it's baked into their, to their DNA and everything they do. And so that you can feel that it's, like their emails don't feel like marketing emails. They feel like conversation starters. Their ads don't feel like ads. They feel like they're serving you something that you actually want or that you need. So it's about being bigger than just whatever you're selling. It's not, you know, you could be a drop shipper and just sell a product to a person just for the sake of getting money and selling a product. Or you could go this route of kind of thinking about the human connection behind commerce and being bigger than that and more important than that. I agree. I, I don't think as marketers, we, we focus enough on making consumers feel good. Yeah. And if you really, if you really think about it in D2C, ultimately every brand is competing against all the other brands in their category. But then on top of that, you're competing against Amazon. And that's a hell of a competitor to have in the e-commerce space. But the one thing that Amazon cannot do at the scale that they are at is they can't give you that exceptional experience, that relational uh, commerce instead of transactional. Amazon is transactional and they're going to probably beat you on shipping. They're probably going to beat you on cost, but they're never going to beat you on connection. They're never going to beat you on community and they're never going to beat you on those little intangible moments like you're talking about. Like when Bloom sends out a gift card to Starbucks and you're going, oh my, this is, this brand now feels like my best friend. Like when your friend Venmo's you and is like, coffee's on me today, that's how Bloom feels. That's Amazon can't do that. So it's like really the, it's the thing that D2C can harness and handle that'll set your brand apart and actually find success. And not only that, it's not just short-term success. You're building long-term success at that time. What an incredible mode it is when you, when you have these consumers who are emotionally engaged and attached to you. Uh, that becomes a big differentiator for your brand. I, yeah. I love that. So how do you beat Amazon? That's how we're going to label that section there. Yeah. How to beat Amazon. <laughs> be a human. Be a human. There's there's something else that you've mentioned that that makes a brand human centric, and that's thinking locally, local e-commerce uh, or local commerce. Uh, tell us about that. How, how does that? How are those two connected? Yeah. So you know there there is this trend because of the pandemic towards local commerce and geographically local. Like a lot of us, really, things closed down, and we went, oh my god, there's all these places in my city that. I don't want to lose, but they're small business owners, they're indie brands. And so a lot of us turned inwards towards our community and said, how can I support? How can I keep the, you know, the restaurants that have been here forever? How can I keep the cafes open? This, you know, local store that's done so much for our homeless community, how do we keep them around? And so we, we saw this 
like worldwide consumer shift towards local. But something I've also mentioned is, you know, I talk a lot in D2C. And so the question is, well, if we don't have a physical location, what does local commerce even mean? And it's getting back into this, this humanized commerce that we're talking about that local doesn't always mean geographically local. Sometimes it just means ideologically local, like whatever is local to your heart. So like Bite Toothpaste Bits is a really good example. They are all about sustainability. Every single thing they do is about zero waste, sustainability, and their customers are some of the most loyal customers ever. And it's because that's a local mission to them. That's something that feels like home. It hits close to home for them. And so that's this idea of human-centric commerce. Um, we've also, you know, we've called it don't market, start helping. Um, I've also said it should be D to P, direct to people, not direct to consumers. We're all, it's all hitting on the same thing, but it's that, you know, when you, you've been somewhere so many times, like your local cafe and you walk in and you know the owner and they say, Hey, or you go to a bar and the bartender's like, Oh, do you want the usual? Like that's a moment that I know everyone has felt or has desired to feel. And it's so special and you can do that even without just like that geographically local by just getting to know your customers and remembering who's coming back and having automations that remind them who they are and why they're here and why you're serving them and what that connection is. Um, it, it's That's really what it comes down to. And so with this trend that we saw of people physically turning in and looking local, it's also going to, you know, people are turning in and finding things that feel local to their heart. So what do you care about? Where is my money going? Who is it supporting? What mission does that add to? How am I impacting the world I live in based on where I'm shopping? Commerce can be seen as very, you know, transactional and shallow and you're just buying things, but it really is like the deep mover of our societies and our cultures. And so now with the pandemic, we've really seen people and consumers looking a lot more thoughtfully into where their purchases are going. And so that's kind of this idea of local commerce being both physically local and emotionally local and ideologically local and culturally local. And even down to things like, you know, I thought about this so many times. I, I love Outdoor Voices and I'm sure we're going to talk about this. And <laughs> I think that they have a really great mission that can be applied to so many different locations. So, you know, I've always wondered why do DTC brands not do more local targeting with ads? Like, Hey, let's take models out to um, the red rocks Canyon. That's 15 minutes from my house here in Colorado Springs. And let's put up ads that only target people in Colorado Springs that say like your go-to outfit for climbing the red rocks or these things that you can start to pull on those local heartstrings while still being location agnostic. Um, that's one of the things I've always just been like, oh, I want more brands to do local advertising because, you know, think about the words that people use. It's different from city to city. It's different from state to state. The way you talk to somebody who lives in Minneapolis is going to be different than the way you talk to somebody who lives in California or how you sell to them or what products you sell. Because, you know, in California, you might not need a big fluffy coat, but you're going to need one in, in Minnesota. So just thinking in terms of, you know, breaking your customers down even further into what do they care about? Where do they live? What does that mean about them where they live? How do they interact with your products? So really just getting back to that. They're not just numbers. These are not numbers of sales. These are human beings with real life problems and goals and aspirations that you're selling something to. So there's a way that you can start to think about commerce in this more locally human centric way. You know, I was going to ask you about 
data and, and you've sort of led us there. Uh, there's a tension between both. And yeah. it seems like that's a great way to marry the quantitative and the qualitative. Yeah. What are some other examples, some other ways you've seen brands use data to feed into to a good experience? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to go back to house for this example. I mentioned this happy hour tour they did. What I thought was so interesting about it was, you know, I asked Helene at one point, like, how did you pick what cities to go into? Because they were in Denver and Seattle, and I think they did one in LA, and they might have done one in Austin. And this was that marrying of data and qualitative data. So what they did was they picked these areas where they saw in their data were high volume sales. And so then they went into those cities and they found bars and restaurants that were popular to the locals. And so they were hitting on all these different pieces. This is a lot of like data backed stuff that they did. And then they went and they had these qualitative conversations with customers. And so they were able to see how many people showed up, how many people were excited, how many people came and talked to us, what were their questions, what were they caring about? All of a sudden they have this bank of information of, you know, when we're selling in Denver, people are talking about the effects of alcohol and altitude versus when we're selling in Seattle, they're talking about more of the sugar content. And these are things I'm just making up, but those are the lessons they started to learn. And then they got even more creative and they had these uh, cards at those events that had specific checkout codes or promo codes. And so then they were able to see, okay, after this event, let's look for, you know, one month, two months, three months, which cities had the most purchases. And then they went a step further and said, which cities had the most repeat purchases and then they were able to say, you know, they learned really quickly that Denver really wasn't the best market for them to go super heavy in, but Seattle was. And so now they're, you know, they shift ad budget to say, all right, let's make sure we're targeting Seattle with these messages more so than we're targeting Denver because we know they're more profitable customers. This is a perfect marriage of data and qualitative data that's leading to this human experience of commerce. And it's not them saying like, oh, because Denver didn't get us as much sales, we're not going to service Denver. They're just saying they're not the perfect, you know, maybe this isn't the perfect fit for us right now. So we're going to still offer those people what we can, but we're going to shift focus to the people we know really connect with the mission and connected with us as humans when they were there and then bought the product and loved the product. That's that's a whole new way of looking at commerce. Um, other than that, the other ways are going to be Number one is just talking to your customers. You can hear the basis of everything that House does is that they're talking to their customers, like actually really talking to them. They were in person. You had Helena and Woody in these bars talking, answering any question anybody wanted to, having any discussion they wanted to. And so whether that's, you know, right now we can't do that, but you can still get on the phone. You can still do Instagram polls. You can ask people in emails for their feedback. You can go one-on-one with your customers that's going to show you so much more than even data ever will. Um, other than that, you know, a lot of times you'll see you hop on the phone with somebody, a customer, and they tell you something maybe you didn't hear, you didn't see in your own brand because you get so close to your brand. It's hard to see kind of the external view of what customers are thinking about. So maybe you get on a phone and you, you ask your customer, what does my brand mean to you? Or like, what do you like about it? What do you dislike about it? And then taking those words that your customers use and put them into your advertising, put them into your emails, put them on your website, whatever copywriting genius you think you might have, your customers are going to have a better handle on those words because that's what they care about. Um, I'm trying to think of any other, you know, I already mentioned providing value outside of the product itself. So like content, Instagram, social, community things, partnerships with other brands, 
doing these things that make it bigger than yourself and then measuring the data on that. And you're going to figure out, okay, if we partner with this brand who has this kind of value mission base and our sales did really well, that actually tells me not just the data of my sales do really well, but it also tells you the qualitative data of what do my customers care about in the ecosystem of our products, not just our direct products. Um, And then lastly, thinking really holistically about the experience of your brand. So from the time someone lands on your website to every single touch point that they could possibly interact with your brand on, is it building an overall holistic experience that feels human, that doesn't feel like it's a robot spitting out an email that feels uncomfortable and kind of sucks? Um, It's thinking about how those things work together so your data can drive decisions, but you have to remember that you can't just only go after the data and forget about the human side of it because that might lead you to create an experience that doesn't feel good. And so, yeah, thinking about how the two help each other. Um, the the thing that I kind of come down to, I think my one-liner is customers before metrics. And that doesn't mean that you're foregoing data. It just means that you care about what your customers are experiencing, how you're servicing them first and foremost. And a lot of times when you do that, the metrics you're chasing are going to follow you. So if you're if you're giving them the best experience ever, the LTV is going to go up because why would they why would they go to another brand if it's such a good experience they can't get elsewhere? Um, so yeah, that's that's my long winded answer that comes down to customers before metrics or humans before data. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a good answer. I'm actually thinking of of Katie Marshall who we interviewed from from Pattern Brands and. Uh, she's really big on on qualitative information. She'll ask customers to put a, a camera in the kitchen as they cook and prep, so that she can make observations in, in a real life yeah. setting. Oh, you just made me think of another great example of this, which then also ties in how retail and D two C work together. So I interviewed Alexandra Waldman, who's the founder of Universal Standard, and they have retail, but it's showroom retail. So the experience you get there is you go in, um, you've answered questions before, you're one on one with a stylist. They might have like coffee or champagne. You can bring your friends. It's more of like, you know, the traditional um, wedding dress shopping experience. It's just catered towards you. They're helping you style, find new clothes. And one of the things, you know, I asked her, how has the retail influenced what you do on the online side? Because they were digitally native first and then went into retail. And, you know, she had all these interesting things to say, but the one that stuck in my head was you just get these insights into customers that you wouldn't get anywhere else of, when when someone tries on this dress, now they can see, okay, usually when they put it on, they turn to the left first, and then they turn to the right, and then they want to look at the butt. And then like, here's how they pull at the shoulder, and here's where the hem feels weird to them. Here's the questions they're asking us of, how do I wash this? Or will this shrink? Because some of my dresses shrink, and then they're too short. And she said, just taking that information, they're able to do things like on their product pages now, on that, say it's a dress or a t-shirt, those product images, the third one is going to be a video of someone turning to the left and looking and then turning to the right and looking and then pulling here and there because they know this is how customers actually want to interact with our products. If they can't actually do it, we can at least give them a hint into what it would feel like. That was one of those when she told me, I was just like, that's so cr- it's crazy how something that seems so innocuous in a retail experience can totally change the way that you sell online. I loved that story. Totally. I, I think I go left too when I'm looking in the mirror, by the way. Yeah. I think I go left. Yeah. For sure. I yeah, do. I think I go left. <laughs> I think sure. so many people do. <laughs> <laughs> Evidently. <laughs> do you miss going into stores or, or, or do you buy everything online? Do you miss the retail experience? What, what kind of buyer are you? 
Kristen. Yeah, I I do miss the retail experience. I love going into stores. I really do. Um, I don't know if it's because I tend to <laughs> like think less about how much money I'm spending and buy more for myself when I'm in person, or you know, just that that connection that I'm talking about that you just don't get online. And especially, you know, I work remote. I have worked remote for four or five years now. So there's so much in my life that can just end up happening in these four walls of my home and in my head. And sometimes going in shopping is one of the only ways you can get that like human experience with people that are outside of your circle where you can encounter people from different backgrounds or that are doing different things. And just even if you're not talking to them about anything other than what you're shopping for, you're still getting this connection with different people. Um, here in Colorado, our, you know, our restrictions aren't that bad on in-store shopping. So when I have the chance and it makes sense, I'm still going in-store shopping. Um, I just went and bought a pair of jeans this weekend because I went to try on my jeans and none of them fit. And I was like, oh no, I have to go see somebody and I need some jeans that fit. So I went in and it was a wonderful experience. I still got in and out. It was that immediacy of buying something and I got to wear it that night and I loved it. And and so I, I do have this balance um, on how I shop elsewhere, though. I think probably about 90% of my shopping is done through D2C brands. One, because of my, my work and I encounter so many amazing entrepreneurs with stories and then I can't help but buy their stuff and then I fall in love with it. Um, I'm a big repeat purchaser, too. Once I, once I feel trust in a brand and their products... I'm usually going to buy it for a long time. Um, I m- probably 80% of my closet is outdoor voices at this point. It's not slowing down anytime <laughs> soon because uh, I love their products. And then, you know, I, I'll never shy away to, to admit they're like, of course I buy stuff on Amazon as well. There are certain times like when I'm buying zip ties or baggies, I don't really care about the mission behind the brand there. I'm just looking to get something <laughs> at the best price and get it quickly. So there's still are times where I shop Amazon, but if it's anything else, I'm always trying to go with an indie brand just because I have, you know, I've been able to talk to so many of these founders. I know how hard it is. So I'm like, if I'm going to spend money on something that's not a basic that I, you know, that maybe the cost isn't the most important thing or the quickness of the shipping isn't the most important thing, then I will go to, then I will always try to go to a D2C brand that I know. And when I can't find one that I know, that's when I go to Twitter. And then everybody gives me way too many good ideas. <laughs> What makes you abandon a cart when, when you're shopping online? What'll drive you to put things in there and then just leave? Yeah, I think there are a few reasons. One of them is I sometimes do the just I'm bored and so I need to go online shopping thing. And then I add everything to my cart and I get to it and I'm like, girl, you do not have that much money in your bank account. You need to walk <laughs> away. <laughs> and so that is probably my number one thing, which I think is a lot of people's is that you're just like, wait, I don't actually need to do this right now. Um, but other than that, like when I'm really at a point of I want to spend money, uh, this is actually something I experienced over Black Friday, Cyber Monday, because I was like, ooh. I want to spend money, but I kept coming to checkouts where then I didn't convert. And I had to think about, I had to retroactively think, why did I only shop at one place? Like I only converted once when I was here ready to spend money on kind of whatever I found. Um, and this is not, this is not like a, a, I guess it is a biased answer here, but one of the biggest ones for me is if they have shop pay or not, because I have an account with shop pay. And that means it's a, I fill in my email address and it's got my address 
and my billing method and my billing account. And then I can place an order within about 30 seconds. And then it's in my app that's right on my phone. Um, so, you know, even if it's not shop paid, just like quick, fast checkout is the biggest one. Um, another one will be unexpected fees and taxes is you get in there and your cart went from 55 to 76. And all of a sudden you're, it's a, it's a different kind of expense that I'm at. Uh, and then lastly, it's shipping costs, you know, which is, it, and this is such a bummer too, because I know how hard shipping is, but there are some times where it's, you know, if the shipping is as much as the product I'm buying, I maybe I'm not going to actually go through with it. So I think those are the three biggest things. Um, yeah. Quick checkout. Uh, what else did I say? Quick checkout. Um, shipping costs. Yeah. Shop, shop pay, pay specifically. Um, shipping costs. And unexpected taxes and fees that'll just throw you out, or just me being uh, yeah. lazy and forgetful. That's another one. <laughs> <laughs> Kristen, I've I've seen this quiz come up quite a bit on Twitter. Where do you stand? Should brands be baking in the cost of shipping into the, to the price of products, or or teasing that out? I I think I land in this this terrible place of it depends. Um, it depends on your product. It depends on the average order value of your product. If your order average value is pretty high already, sometimes a small shipping cost won't really phase customers. If your average order value is $10, having to pay another $10 for shipping, now all of a sudden feels like, why am I buying this? It's not worth $20. It's worth $10. So I think it depends on one, you have to think about perceived value versus true value on this. So if you're saying your product is $10, but it actually costs $20 to get to my house, then the perceived value is $10, even though the actual value might actually be that $20. So in that case, I'd say roll that shipping cost in and say it's free shipping and your margins are still good. Um, but yeah, it really just depends on what what kind of products you're selling, how your customers react. Um, a, a great example of this is I mentioned by toothpaste bits. They don't do expedited shipping because it's more sustainable to go on existing routes than to go on expedited routes. And their customers are okay with that because their customers are caring about the sustainability more than the cost of shipping. So usually they're okay with getting orders that take longer, that maybe cost something, but they know it's serving the mission that they ultimately want. So it's such a, it's such an, it depends situation. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many ways you can do it. You can do thresholds to shipping. You can uh, offer promo codes for shipping. You can bundle it into your product so it's there. But just really thinking about what's the best experience for my customers based on my products and my margins and how they react to the checkout. And these are things you can test. Also, crazy, these are things you can straight up ask your customers. You could straight up <laughs> say, would you rather pay $20 in free shipping or would you rather pay $10 and $8 in shipping? And some people may say, Bundle it all together. I don't want to think about a shipping cost separate. Um, but th yeah, those are going to be things that your customers will probably tell you the best answer to that better than I could ever answer that. <laughs> one, uh, that's one of the best it depends answers I've, I've heard in a while. <laughs> I've, I've heard you speak on some of the anxiety that you've experienced in engaging with the Twitter community. What do you think helped you get in and, and stick with it? Yeah, at first it was it was so intimidating because there there is this kind of like, not a click, but there's a community of D2C people. I mean, we call it the D2C fam. I'm literally wearing a D2C fam shirt right now. And, you know, as someone with some social anxiety, I immediately tend to get kind of nervous about entering new groups because it's, I mean, it's scary. They have their, 
accepted norms. They have processes. They have the way things are. And to come in and be a new face can be really intimidating and scary. I think what helped me get over it was, one, just knowing that my passion for this industry was bigger than my fear and that I was willing to kind of go out on a limb and say, I really care about what I'm saying and it might not be right and that's okay, but I'm here to learn. Um, I think that was a big piece of it. Being openly curious um, and being able to say, you know, as a podcast host, I think this is something I learned really quickly is you don't have to be the smartest one in the room, but you have to know who is or you have to at least give them the space to teach you. So being able to osmosis from people around you, I think that really helped me just by going on Twitter and genuinely saying, I'm brand new, but here are some thoughts from the outside. What do you guys think? And then I started to get feedback and I started to have the community kind of rally around me, which is the beautiful thing about the D2C community is like, we love new faces and we love new perspectives. It's one of the best parts about commerce is that even if you've never been in e-commerce, you still have a perspective that's worth people hearing because you're a consumer and you've seen things and you have opinions on what you like and don't like. And that really helps operators. So uh, yeah, it's, it's nerve wracking and it's scary to go into a new kind of industry or group, especially when there's a lot of us that call ourselves experts, even though I don't necessarily think anybody's an expert. I think we're all just consistently learning. So it's about having that perpetual curiosity and interest in what you're doing. Um, and then I just really committed to it. I just, you know, I started finding this love and this fire for what I was doing. And yes, I got really great responses, which definitely helps when you have people saying like, Ooh, this is good. This is great. Um, but I just, you know, I committed to it and I just said, I want to be a face in this community and I feel like I have something worth sharing and then I just kept iterating on that idea as I learned from people and I learned what people responded to, what didn't resonate, what people wanted me to talk about, what they wanted me to shut up about. Um, you know, there's all those things that you learn. But I think those were the things that kind of helped me get over that that initial social anxiety that that definitely comes up. And before we go real quick. One of your dreams is to own, uh, you and your husband, a coffee shop. Yes. Okay. So my my idea is an auto shop with a cafe in it. So my husband is super into cars. He owns two cars. Um, we have like an outdoor vehicle and then he has his daily driver and then I have my car and he does all of our, you know, tire rotation and he does the oil and all this stuff. Wow. And, and so, but at the same time you have, you know, me where I have this experience of, I've been in an auto shop before and it's kind of this like scary, intimidating boys club or it's an old guy who's saying like, oh, honey, I can help you out here. And it's <laughs> not always a great experience. And that's not even, you know, it's it's not even a gender specific thing. It, it happens to men all the time where if you don't really know what you're talking about, it can feel scary and it can almost feel like you're being taken advantage of. Really, it's just a, it's a retail experience that's ripe for disruption for a, a certain kind of consumer. And so I have this idea that, you know, we open this auto shop that's very community focused, that's super clean and like Gen Z focused and markets to the people who maybe don't know what's going on. And you can do workshops like, hey, a female learn how to change your tire. So you don't have to worry about like being on the side of, ro of the road alone. And you actually have this community space where people feel comfortable learning or, you know, say a young college kid comes in and he's getting his oil change, but he wants to learn how to do it on his own. 
that's something where this auto shop can actually, you can go and you know personally um, the guy who's working on your car, he can walk you through stuff. You have like an online portfolio where they tell you when to come in. They tell you when your oil needs changing. They give you all these tips and advice. And then I have that, that cafe side of it as well, because I, I love cafes. I think they have just like the most fun local ambiance. Like that's really the place. Th- those are the places I've been where I get recognized where it's like, Oh, you've worked here every day for the last two months. You want that, that Americano with no cream. Okay, cool. Like I got you. And, and those kind of really close one-on-one experiences and you combine those two and it's a cool place to go work and sit with friends a, a cool place to take somebody on a date if you can go and like, oh, look at these cool outdoor vehicles being worked on while we have a nice local beer. Um, it, but also at the same time, like you can go have your car worked on and you can watch the whole process and have a coffee and just create a better experience. I think anytime I think about these potential things I want to do or things we want to own, it always comes down to this idea of, what experience is there right now that is ripe for disruption that could use more humanity, that could use more community focus? Cause that's what we're seeing commerce is going towards. And then how could we create that? So, you know, if it's not a cafe, if it's not an auto shop, we've talked about doing like a local sandwich and beer place because we don't have one in Colorado Springs, you know, like slicing the meat in front of people and it's all really good ingredients from local farmers. Um, or if I did, you know, someone just asked me recently, uh, someone asked me if you had to start a D2C brand and you're not allowed to say dog clothes, what would it be? Um, because I would always <laughs> go with like the pet industry is, is where I would always go. Um, but you know, the other answer would be something in the sexual wellness space. Because if you think about that, that is a shopping experience that is not great. And that is traditionally super awkward and uncomfortable to go into like a weird sex store when you're 18 years old, looking at like giant dildos and vibrators. That's, that's not a fun experience. So of course, a lot of people don't go do that stuff. And so there is this whole area where you can kind of recreate the shopping experience around something that was previously uncomfortable. That's where I think there's all this success to be had. So yeah, I have so many ideas, but the the auto shop cafe is my favorite one. And I want to do it because I feel like it's, there's a huge market for it. And it could just be that experience could be completely turned on its head. And it would be so cool and fun. And I would get to learn how to change a tire because somehow I still don't know how to do it. <laughs> I, I don't know how to do it either, by the way. I'm like a perfect customer because I get taken <laughs> to the cleaners at every mechanic. And yeah. so I'm a, I'm a perfect customer. And I love that idea. Yeah, it'd be um, so fun. And I, I just, I imagine having like almost the same way as I was talking about universal standard has this stylist relationship where, you know, after you go into the showroom once, you actually have that contact information with a stylist. So say you want a new outfit for something I can go to that stylist who knows you, knows your sizes, know what, knows what you like, help you find something for that. I feel like there's that is missing in that auto industry of imagine, you know, your mechanic and you can text them and say like, uh, my car's making this weird noise. Is this something I should be concerned about? And you're getting this actual interaction versus just being like, Oh God, something's wrong with my car. And now I have to go deal with this like terrifying situation where I feel uncomfortable and the lobby is cold and has terrible coffee and no internet <laughs> and all of that. It just totally changes what that experience could be. And that's the stuff that excites me about commerce so much. Kristen, thank you so much for, for, for taking the time to talk to me today. Really. Yeah. Thank it. you so much for having me. This is so fun. You can follow Kristen on Twitter. She's super active and, and always tweeting great stuff. It's at KD LaFrance. 
Uh, you can go to our website. It's kristinlafrance.com and check out the first season of our podcast, Resilient Retail, at resilient.shopify.com. And Kristen, when does season two come out? Uh, it's a really good question. Um, I'm going to have to keep you on your toes on that one. Okay, it depends. Right. It depends how uh, my next few weeks go on the productivity scale. But I'm hoping for <laughs> some uh, look around mid March. We're going to have some hype episodes, some special bonus stuff come out in between seasons, and then most likely right. early April. That's my tar- that's my target. So if I'm saying it in public, it's early April. Got to commit to it now. That's it. it. It's now. in the books. All right. It's in the books. All right. You heard it here first. Early April. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening. This is the DTC Growth Show by hashtag Paid.